Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Hydro One Limited's second quarter 2021 analyst teleconference. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star one on your telephone. As a reminder, the call is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your host for today's conference, Mr. Omar Javid, Vice President, Investor Relations at Hydro One. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us in Hydro One's earnings call. Joining us today are our President and CEO, Mark Poeska, our Chief Financial Officer, Chris Lopez, and our Chief Regulatory Officer, Frank D'Andrea. In the call today, we will go over our recently filed joint rate application, our sustainability goals, and the quarterly results. We will then spend the majority of the call answering as many of your questions as time permits. There are also several slides that illustrate some of the points we'll address in a moment. They should be up on the webcast now, or if you're dialed into the call, you can find them on Hydro One's website in the events and uh, in the investor relations section under events and presentations. Today's discussions will likely touch on estimates and other forward-looking information. You should review the cautionary language in today's earnings release and our MDNA, which we filed this morning regarding the various factors, assumptions, and risks that could cause our actual results to differ as they all apply to this call. With that, I'll turn the call over to our President and CEO, Mark Kuesker. Thank you, Omar. Before we begin, I'm sorry to share that in mid-June, one of our employees lost his life after being struck by a motor vehicle while working in the Capas Casing region. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family, friends, and coworkers. Along with all our employees, executives and directors, I'm devastated that we have experienced this tragic loss. Safety remains our top priority and we must eliminate serious injuries in our company. The investigation on what led to this incident is ongoing and together with the authorities, we're looking to understand the details and the cause of the accident. We're yet again reminded of the hazards our employees face and the extremely tough conditions in which they work to deliver reliable electricity and fulfill our customers' needs. To operate a safe and resilient grid, our assets need investment, and our customers are supportive of reinvesting in an electricity system that will provide them with reliable power. On August 5th, we filed our comprehensive five-year investment plan for both the transmission and distribution segments of our business with the Ontario Energy Board. Informed by extensive customer engagement, this is our first ever joint rate application. It is a strategic plan to significantly improve reliability for our distribution customers, manage risks, prepare for the impacts of climate change, support communities, and contribute to economic development. It balances the needs of customers with the impact on bills through our hard work, innovation, and continuous improvement. 
In 2019 and 2020, Hydro One conducted customer engagement surveys to reflect customer needs and preferences for the transmission and distribution system investment plan. The engagement was the most comprehensive in Hydro One's history, with nearly 50,000 customers participating. For the first time, investment planning and customer, customer engagement processes were integrated over two phases, and customer feedback was provided as an input into the overall plan. In addition to hardening the system to withstand the impacts of climate change and to make it more reliable for future generations, we learned just how important it is, not only to Hydro One, but also to our customers, that we, one, proactively replace aging infrastructure to avoid more costly repair, maintenance, and emergency work, two, make investments to improve reliability, and three, make the system more resilient. We also conducted a systemic review of our asset investment needs, driven by asset condition and system requirements. What we found was a significant portion of transmission, distribution, and common assets have deteriorated to the point where they pose a, a risk to achieving business and customer objectives around safety, reliability, and the environment. This needs to be fixed and we are confident that our five-year plan is the right plan for all Ontarians. We have a critical need to modernize our grid, to prepare for future integrated distributed energy resources, to prepare the system for severe weather and the impacts of climate change, to prepare for the greater electrification of the economy and enhance cybersecurity, to ultimately develop a modern, flexible grid of the future. We have seen that Ontario has continued to prosper and there is continued economic growth that requires access to safe and reliable power. Whether it's the agriculture sector in Southwest Ontario or mining in the North, electricity is the backbone of the economy and we're committed to connecting new customers and facilitating economic prosperity. As a result of our robust asset management approach, in this significant customer outreach, we are proposing capital expenditures of approximately $12.5 billion over the 2023 to 2027 period. Of this amount, approximately 67% is geared towards system renewal. The, re the remainder represents a combination of one, non-discretionary spend driven by our obligation to connect and two, investments to ensure that we are meeting operational objectives and addressing future customer requirements. Some examples of the work that is contemplated under the extensive investment plan are as follows. For the transmission segment, we will invest approximately $3.5 billion to address station assets, including those which link major generation resources to major load centers, and those that serve local distribution companies and large industrial facilities. We've allocated approximately $1.9 billion to address lines assets, which serve smaller towns, First Nations communities and businesses, 
pipeline compressor stations, and large load facilities such as mines and paper mills. For the distribution business, we will modernize infrastructure to detect, repair, and restore power more quickly, thereby improving resiliency and reducing the impact of power outages on our customers by up to 25% over the application period. We will install approximately 1,200 remote operable switches and reclosers, approximately 5,000 fault indicators. We will replace 51,000 wood poles in poor condition and refurbish another 14,000 poles. We will also add 120 distribution station transformers and facilitate new load connections. And these are just some examples of the extensive work required. Combined, these transmission and distribution capital investments will result in a rate-based growth of approximately 6% per annum for the five-year period 23 to 27. This is an increase of approximately 1% from our previous rate-based growth guidance till 2022, reflecting the needs of the system and our customers. We will do this work while becoming even more efficient and more productive. The savings as a result of our combined hard work, our efficiency and our productivity to date are already flowing to our customers. Since the IAPO to the end of 2020, we generated over $738 million in productivity savings. These and future improvements allow us to reduce the rate impact for our customers. And I'm pleased to say that based on these numbers, in the first year of the new investment period, customer bills will decrease for the distribution segment by 1.8% and decrease for transmission segment by 0.3%. Over the five-year period of the application, distribution and transmission customers will see an average increase that is less than expected inflation. Distribution and transmission bills will have an average annual increase of 0.8% and 0.3% respectively over five years. To put that into context, our typical residential customer's bill will increase by an average of $1.68 each year for the five-year period. Again, our work to drive efficiencies and continually improve productivity has helped us to keep our costs as low as possible for our customers. And as we consider the needs of the grid, we're also taking the initiative to be mindful of the environment in which we operate. I am proud to report that we have received a number of accolades on the sustainability front. We received the Environmental Excellence Award from the Electricity Distributors Association for our pollinator program. We're recognized again by Corporate Knights as a best 50 corporate citizen in Canada. And we were designated a sustainable electricity company yet again by the CEA. So today, we are also excited to share our annual sustainability report. It highlights the important progress we have taken over the last year and sets out our new sustainability priorities centered on people, planet, and community. 
We have further increased our transparency by aligning with GRI and SASB standards and are on our way to alignment with the TCFD standard. For Planet, we're including climate change considerations into decisions and plans to ensure grid resiliency through our adaptation strategies. We're also making commitments to do our part in mitigating climate change and establishing new targets. While we only account for 0.2% of Ontario's emissions, we plan to achieve a 30% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Furthermore, Hydro One is committed to achieving net zero GHG emissions by 2050. This means that along with many other initiatives, we're planning on converting 100% of our fleet of sedans and SUVs to electric vehicles or hybrids by 2030. For people, we're setting targets and working to identify, eliminate, and prevent systemic barriers in the workplace. As signatories to the Catalyst Accord, we're committed to achieving in our workplace at least 30% of female executives, while our board is already at 50%. We also signed the Black North Initiative Pledge, under which we are committed to having 3.5% Black executives and board of directors, as well as hiring 5% Black students in our workforce by 2025. These steps will renew our promise to identify, eliminate, and prevent systemic barriers in the workplace and build a diverse, equitable, and inclusive workforce at Hydro One. And finally, for communities, we realize that Hydro One has a critical role to play in helping Ontario emerge stronger from the COVID-19 pandemic. We are continuing to support the Ontario economy by investing in our communities, hiring locally, paying taxes, and buying goods and services from local suppliers, including Indigenous suppliers. In 2020, we purchased $1.4 billion of goods and services from Ontario suppliers. Our shared success depends on our ability to build trust as a reliable partner and good neighbour for communities and the people of Ontario. We also recognize that we serve approximately 100 First Nations communities across Ontario, and we are committed to building long-term relationships with these communities. While we spent $42 million with Indigenous communities in 2020, we're excited to announce that we will increase spending to 5% of the company's purchases of materials and services on Indigenous procurement by 2026. In addition, as part of our community investment program, we will ensure that 20% of our corporate donations and sponsorships support Indigenous communities. As I've referenced in previous calls, I'm pleased to say our unions share our overall partnership mind. Recently, the members of the Society of United Professionals voted in favor of renewing the collective agreement. This collective agreement covers approximately 1,800 employees in frontline supervisory, engineering, and professional roles across the company's operations. The agreement reflects our shared commitment to working together. Notably, for the first time, wage increases included an equity component. 
The agreement also allows for increased productivity, enhanced flexibility, and a renewed emphasis on diverse and inclusive practices. We are now in a period of labor stability with this agreement in place for the next couple of years. And with that, I'll turn it over to Chris to discuss our positive financial results for this quarter. Over to you, Chris. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I hope you and your families are safe and doing well. I'll take this moment to express my sincerest of condolences to the family, friends, and co-workers affected by this tragic motor vehicle accident. My thoughts and prayers are with you all. With respect to the business, we are excited about the recent filing of the joint rate application that includes the investment plans for both our transmission and distribution businesses for 2023 through to 2027. Equally, I am energized by the recent release of our sustainability targets and happy to share our sustainability report which outlines the progress we have made and the impact we have had on people, the planet, and the communities we serve. In terms of our financial results for the quarter, we saw a decline in earnings per share to 40 cents from $1.84. Although this seemed dramatic, the decline was primarily due to the Deferred Tax Asset, or DTA, decision by the Ontario Divisional Court that was rendered in Q2 of 2020, which led to an $867 million income tax recovery last year. On an adjusted basis this quarter, we saw an increase in earnings per share to $0.40 cents compared to $0.39 cents in the same period last year. The main drivers of higher adjusted earnings this quarter were Ontario Energy Board or OEB approved rates for the transmission and distribution segments, higher demand and lower COVID-19 related expenses. These were partially offset by one-time revenues for the transmission segment in the second quarter of 2020. Higher operation and maintenance administration costs and higher depreciation and asset removal costs. Our second quarter revenue net of purchase power was higher year over year by 2.6%. This was comprised of OEB approved rates for 2021, as well as stronger demand in both the transmission and distribution segments. Transmission revenues were lower by 2.4%, while Distribution revenues net of purchase power were higher by 8.1%. For the transmission segment, the revenue reflects OEB approved rates resulting from the transmission rate filing received in the second quarter of last year, as well as strong peak demand this quarter. However, the year-over-year revenue increase was offset by the one-time impacts of the OEB decision last year, which included the catch-up revenue for the first quarter of 2020, and the recognition of conservation and demand management revenues, both of which drove last year's revenues higher. Year-over-year peak demand for the quarter was higher by 1.8%, driven by strong demand in April and June, partially offset by lower demand in May. For the distribution segment, in addition to the OEB approved rates, electricity distributed to Hydro One customers was higher by 8.6%. That said, nearly 48% of the increase was attributed to the inclusion of demand from the acquired electric local distribution companies, or LDCs, Peterborough and Aurelia, which had closed in the third quarter of 2020, and as such, were not included last year. While these two LDCs contributed towards higher distribution revenues, the impact to net income was not material. On the cost front, operating maintenance and administration expenses 
were higher by 7% year over year. The year over year comparability is challenging as last year we incurred higher COVID-19 related costs due to the temporary stand down of our workforce in the face of the pandemic. At the time, these COVID-19 costs were largely offset by lower work program costs as programs were deferred. This year, the relationship of COVID-19 costs and work program costs has reversed. We incurred minimal COVID-19 costs, but higher work program costs. These higher work program costs are driven by timing of vegetation management work, our emergency restoration efforts, and customer programs in the distribution segment. As referenced earlier, OMA was also higher due to the acquisition of Peterborough and Aurelia. Consistent with previous quarters, the financial impact of the measures taken by Hydro One to support our customers, including the Pandemic Relief Fund, financial assistance and increased payment flexibility, extending the Winter Relief Program, and the Small Business Pandemic Relief Program launched in January 2021 were not material. Depreciation expense was higher year over year due to the increase in capital assets, which is consistent with our stated capital investment program, as well as higher asset removal costs and environmental spend. On financing, we saw a decrease in interest expense in the quarter due primarily to the recognition of carrying charges associated with the recovery of the DTA amounts previously shared with ratepayers. The carrying charges will be minimal going forward. Financing costs also declined due to higher capitalised interest as compared to last year due to a higher average balance of assets under construction in the second quarter of this year. Income tax expense was $26 million for the quarter compared to an income tax recovery of $849 million in the same quarter last year. The increase in income tax expense was primarily due to $867 million income tax recovery recognised last year following the Ontario Divisional Court decision on the deferred tax asset. When adjusted for this one-time item, the adjusted income tax expense for the second quarter last year was $18 million. The $8 million increase in adjusted income taxes was due to lower net deductible timing differences and higher pre-tax earnings. The effective rate this quarter was 9.8% versus 6.9% last year and consistent with our previous guidance of 6 to 13% for periods prior to the implementation of the deferred tax asset decision. With the implementation of the DTA decision on July 1st, 2021, and as communicated last quarter, the effective tax rate guidance will now change to 14 to 22% over the next five years with the most significant impacts over the 21 to 2023 DTA recovery period. As a reminder, the change in effective tax rate will be net income neutral. On June 17, 2021, the OEB issued their final guidance on the rules and operation of the deferral accounts established for utilities to track the impacts arising from COVID-19. The OEB determined that eligibility for recovery of most balances will be subject to a means test based on the utility's achieved regulatory ROE. Given this guidance, we have not recognised any amounts related to COVID-19 costs as regulatory assets. As a reminder, we had reversed the recognition of regulatory assets associated with bad debts in the fourth quarter of 2020 and had recognised the expense in the same period. As a result, there is no net income impact from this guidance. 
Moving to investing activities, capital investments for the second quarter was $553 million, which is a 28.9% increase from the second quarter of 2020. The increase was mainly due to a higher volume of refurbishments and replacements for stations, lines, and wood poles, along with higher investments in multi-year development projects for the transmission business. Higher volume of work on customer connections in both the transmission and distribution businesses, and the construction of a new Ontario grid control centre in Aurelia. We placed $300 million of assets in service in the second quarter, an 81.8% increase compared to the prior year. This was largely a result of the lumpy nature of placing assets into service. The year-over-year increase related primarily to transmission segment, which had substantial completions and higher spend on lines and component replacements in 2021. In the distribution segment, we saw a year-over-year increase of 40.2%, due mainly to a higher volume of work on customer connections and assets placed into service for system capability reinforcement projects. On guidance, we continue to be committed to and affirm our target of 4 to 7% earnings per share growth through 2022. We expect to provide guidance post-2022 after the approval of the joint rate application. As promised, we have updated the future capital investment tables for the period 2021 through to 2027 for all segments. We have also provided the annual expected rate-based numbers and corresponding revenue requirements for the amounts included in the joint rate application. Between the filing of the joint rate application and reaffirmation of our guidance, Hydro One has and continues to demonstrate a resilient business strategy and stable fundamentals. Together, they allow us to support our customers and communities while delivering positive financial results. I'll stop there and we'd be pleased to take your questions. Thank you, Mark and Chris. Uh, we asked the operator to explain how uh, they'd like to organize the Q&A polling process. Uh, in case we aren't able to address your questions today, my team and I are always available to respond to follow-up questions. Please go ahead. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Mark Jarvie with CIBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, the first one, just if I look at the updated CapEx, putting aside the joint rate application, looks like the 2021 and 2022 spend has gone a little higher. Can you just talk about the drivers? And I think also in the joint rate application, it outlines how you're allowed to be above a little bit the forecast for rate base. Just maybe you can give us some context in terms of where you think you'll end up at the end of 22 um, in terms of how much and how much you're allowed to be off of the original forecast in terms of rate base growth. Yeah, Chris, do you, uh, do you mind taking that? Sure. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks for the question, Mark uh, Jarvi. Uh, yeah, so we, we did increase 21. Uh, I think it went up by $140 million. 
approximately. And really what's driving that mark is uh, increased demand work, so uh, customer connections and growth in the distribution business. Uh, but on the transmission side, as you know, our long-term projects are lumpy in nature. So what we're doing there is just moving uh, CapEx between years. It doesn't have a material impact on, on rate base. And then on the distribution side, does it have a sort of a small favorable impact because of the where you'll trend to in rate base for the next couple of years? It, it will do. As I said, it was $40 million of, of additional spend on distribution. And the nature of distribution is trans, changing a little bit. Uh, it now is a combination of – it's still mostly sort of in-year – when you spend the capex, it's in service within 12 months. But there are some longer-term projects now um, helping connect up stations and so on that don't fall on the transmission side of the business. So it has a little bit of lumpiness to it, but the majority of that $40 million will translate into increased rate base. Uh, and as a reminder, we can be within that dead band of uh, plus or minus 2%. Got it. Um, and then when you go through some of your, your materials, there's some you know, talk of like, on the drug application impacts of, of climate change on you know, physical infrastructure. Are you guys seeing anything in terms of increased aging or you know, a bit more wear and tear in terms of strain on reliability? And you know, how does that sort of play into like the sort of the incremental investments you see needed over the next sort of five-year window? Yeah, it's Mark here. We did build in the impacts of climate change into our investment plan, particularly into one dealing with our, our poor conditioned poles, but also our, our vegetation management and in a big way investing in technology to help us with reliability in our assets. So I talked about reclosers and, and fault finders and things like that. And so, uh, we have built in fairly significant investment to reduce our or improve our reliability by about 25% on the distribution side and and a lot of those are 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 reflected in uh adapting to climate change. And just to follow up on that Mark, is it in that technology improvement is, is that sort of a little bit of an opex to capex switch where you can put that you know what you normally do on maintenance spending more into some some capital investments. Um, and then it helps, I guess, just keep bills you know, fairly stable here. That's yeah, the thesis here on, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. We're, we're investing in technology, which will reduce things like truck rolls and things like that um, in, in the event of outages, because we'll be able to restore the system using our central control center um, in a more efficient way. Okay, great. I'll leave it there. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Our next question comes from Maurice Choi with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thanks, and good morning. Um, my first question I uh, wanted to just uh, pick up on, um, might be a little bit too early to ask, but you filed the application on Friday. Um, have you received any early feedback from your stakeholders, including those in government as well as other political parties? As well, you mentioned obviously you've done a few rounds of feedback with other stakeholders in preparation for this application. How significantly different is this application from, from those rounds of feedback? <coughs> I would say our approach um, to to uh, consulting with uh, stakeholders in this round is 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 wide and significant. We also did a um, a technical briefing for media, so the media understands what we're asking for in our application. Um, uh, the feedback we've received is very similar to what we received from our customers. People understand our need to invest in the system. They understand what the drivers are. And, uh, and the approach we're taking is to be open and transparent 
uh, right up front on on what we're asking for and why, and that's why we did a, a proactive technical briefing with media the day after we filed the application. Um, and our uh, our customer engagement really showed a robust support from our customers, which helps with with stakeholders such as government and others that uh, that uh, we did that work so that we can demonstrate that that uh, our customers are supportive of what this investment plan is. And just to follow up on that, have you had any engagement with them since Friday? With customers or no? no specifically those with uh, the government as well as other political parties. No, not 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 since Friday we haven't. We did do the, the media technical briefing on Friday, like I talked about. Um, uh, we did brief uh, stakeholders, uh, uh, some of them the night before, um, like government, um, and they're supportive of our investment and understand why we need to do it. Great. And, and just to finish off my second question, you, the company has always had this simple and easy to understand 555 strategy in this regulatory period. As you look at the JRAP, is there anything in there that would cause you to believe that your EPS and, deep, and dividend growth wouldn't also march in line with your rate-based CAGR? Um, so we've given guidance out to the end of, uh, of 22, and we will update that guidance after the approval of JRAP. Um, I think it's too premature for us to uh, to speculate on that. Um, we need to go through the process with the OEB um, and finalize our rate order, and then we will update that guidance going forward. At least on a funding plan, I, w- I suppose that you, you would you be reconfirming that no equity issuance would be required. That's that's correct. With the the plan that we put forward, we will not need equity to uh, to support the the investment plan. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Rob Hope with Scotia Bank. Your line is open. Good morning, everyone. Uh, two kind of longer-term conceptual questions. Uh, the JRAP's got a placeholder ROE of 8.34%. You know, how are you thinking about kind of, you know, the, that ROE relative to your cost of capital as well as, you know, could you, um, you know, would you be open to the OEB, you know, revising how it's looking at uh, cost of capital, and would you uh, try to spur that? Yeah, so, so Rob, I'll start. Maybe I'll, I'll ask um, uh, Chris or Frank to weigh in because we do have Frank, our chief regulatory officer online. But the 8.34 is is uh, what the ROE would be based on the, the interest rates if we were to set it today. We will be updating that in Q4 of 22 based on the actual uh, formulaic approach for our ROE based on the interest rates at that time. So. So as I said, the, the 8.34% is, is essentially a, a placeholder for today, um, and that will get updated to reflect the differences. Frank, do you, uh, do you have anything you want to weigh in on that? No, you've got that correct, Mark. They, it is a placeholder for now, and we will look at it when we file our final um, draft rate order from the OEB. So that will be determined in the fourth quarter of 2022. Okay, then. Just well, Robert, Chris here. Just uh, remember that is a formulaic process, so it's based on the movement in the Canadian long bonds. Um, the number you see there at 8.34 was the number that was set by the OEP in Q4 of last year. So just as a matter of process, 
we use the rate that they've got out there in the public. Uh, they'll update that again this year, and they'll update it. The one that will apply to this application will be in Q4 of 2022. So it'll depend on your view of interest rates at that point in time. Um, if you were to update it today, it would be you know, 8.7% or, or approximately around that number. But uh, if you look forward to what you think it might be in 2022, that's what we get factored into the uh, ROE. Okay, then just to confirm, you're, you're happy with the formulaic ROE calculation? You wouldn't look to kind of spur a, a revision of the cost of capital parameters? No, at this time, Rob, we're very happy with the, um, we think it balances risk and opportunity together. Uh, now, again, if you were set at a certain point in time, say the economy was in a very unusual place, like right at the beginning of COVID, that might be something we'd look at to say, look, how do we uh, rebalance or adjust that given it's a five-year application? But we think there's sufficient time for that to, to play through by the end of 2022. All right, thank you. Uh, and then kind of a, another longer-term question, you know, just going through the load forecast in the JRAP, uh, you know, looking for kind of, you know, just a little bit of load here. But, you know, as we're in seeing the potential electrification of the economy, how does that kind of weigh into your thinking about potential upside to the demand forecast? And I guess then the offside would be, offside would be, you know, increased embedded generation. So, you know, how are you thinking about kind of the, you know, puts and takes on and benefits of, uh, uh, additional generate or additional demand. Yeah, we, we our load forecast is based on historical load, and then the forward-looking consensus forecasts on things like economic drivers um, uh, of electricity consumption, which includes GDP, housing starts, population, um, and those types of things. It also includes uh, uh, views on uh, EV take up and and. As far as um, overall electrification, we are seeing already, uh, uh, you know, a transition to electrification, which is built into our historic load um, fork or our historic loads, which will carry through to uh, to uh, to the forecast. So, example would be the uh, the agriculture sector has already been transitioning over to electricity, and and as far as that trend continues, it is built into our forecast. Thank you. Our next question comes from Andrew Kuski with Credit Suisse. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning. I guess this is a question for Mark, and it's a bit of a philosophical question on how you thought about the JRAP from a positioning standpoint. And what effectively are you trying to solve for? Is it a capital deployed amount that generates a certain amount of rate rates growth? Or is it from a benchmarking standpoint on where you really want to stand from transmission reliability, distribution reliability with avoiding rate shock in between those two concepts? Yeah, it really is balancing the need for investment in our, on, in our assets based on condition of our assets with, with, uh, with rates and, and impact on, on customers. And, and that's really why we did such an extensive outreach with customers. And, uh, and we did assess with them, uh, different investment levels and what it would mean to their bills and, and, and ask them, uh, you know, uh, what they would support. We did, we did it both for the transmission customers and the distribution customers. And, uh, and overall we had support from our customers on our level of investment with about half of them, uh, actually saying that we should be investing more 
and half saying we should uh, be at where we are or, or lower. So we think it's good support for our investment plan because it does balance uh, the, uh, the the customers' needs and views with uh, with bill impacts, and uh, and in that one of the one of the big areas the customers were concerned about is reliability, particularly our rural customers, and this investment plan does improve reliability for them by about twenty five percent. So I think we've found that uh, balance, Andrew, in this investment plan, and that's what we'll be putting forward as as our evidence to the uh, to the OEB. That's helpful. And then just to go back to the two-thirds of the capital is really system renewal-oriented, but clearly renewing a system that has facility age that can be 40, 50 years plus in some cases, you get a lot of productivity benefits of the new capital deployment. And you give some so that you expect, but is there ways to quantify that from a financial standpoint, whether it's equipment declines, um, future maintenance capital? Is there something you can give us on that front? Well, maybe I'll, I'll talk about the condition, and, and Chris can weigh in on on the economics and the impacts on that. So, so we've often talked about a third of our assets are end of life. Um, we don't replace assets just because of age. We play, replace them because of condition. So, and the end of life assessment gives us a general assessment, but then we've done uh, a condition asset assessments, and what we've found is is about 10% of our transmission assets are in poor condition today. And uh, and that means about 27% of our transformers, 11% of our breakers, 14% of our conductors. And in this investment plan, um, we're, we're not even dealing with all of those uh, uh, that are in poor condition. We're, we're dealing with, with uh, a lot of them, but but uh, we don't even deal with all of those. So So I believe that there is good... Uh, you know, good evidence as to why we need to invest in, in those, and, and that's 67% of our of our overall investment plan. Chris, do you want to take the second part of Andrew's question? So, Andrew, I, I think it's it's uh, the same program we had from 2015 to 2020. Uh, so through that period, uh, in Mark's comments this morning, he talked about achieving approximately $738 million of productivity savings over those five years, and that's really the, the benefit or the target of offsetting inflation every year. So that's translated into about 50 million per year. That will continue and it gets roughly split over the longer term between our capital and operating programs. So um, you know, up to this point, capital has been more like 65, 70% of our program uh, and OPEX has been the remainder. So I would see that continuing over the longer term. Um, I'll just remind you, Andrew, that's been the big benefit to ratepayers. And uh, where they see that is they see it when we if we over-earn, we, we share 50% of that benefit with ratepayers. And part of that first year uh, rebasing that the, um, invest, the uh, ratepayers are seeing, that 1.8% reduction in bills or $3.20 uh, per bill across the year, uh, a chunk of that is due to the benefits of productivity. So that's us being rebased uh, at the end of this rate period to, um, to those uh, productivity benefits. So I see that continuing. Andrew, uh, it'll be roughly the same as what you saw in the past. Okay, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ben Fan with BMO. Your line is open. Hi, thanks. Good morning. I wanted to go back on the, the financing, funding outlook for the JREP program. You mentioned no need for equity. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, it's a pretty big step up in 
in capex per year. Uh, your your comments on no equity need is that is that just taking your cash flow from operations plus the dividends and then you're financing opco debt at sixty percent? Is that is that what's driving that uh, conclusion? Chris, do you want to respond? Sure. Th- thanks for the question, Ben. Uh, there's two things. Uh, at this point in time, we we are slight. We have, we have some balance sheet flexibility that will take us up to our um, you know, 60-40 debt equity, maybe slightly higher than that over this week period. Uh, but we also have the large deferred tax assets um, on our balance sheet, then, which you might consider, and that sits around $2 billion. So we're monetizing that as well. So as we do that, um, we don't need any additional borrowing to, to do that. Uh, and you know, through the deferred tax asset decision, you saw the return of you know, over 200 and uh, $50 million of of that amount in the next two to three years. And then after that, it's about $50 million per year. So that that's part of it. Um, and then the uplift in earnings, we, we, we will hold our payout ratio constant. So we retain part of that to fund our um, our growth. So we don't see a need for equity when we move from 5 to 6% uh, through to 2027. Okay. And, and would, you, would you say that... Um Given your your your, your source of capital, uh, this new capex program does it does it restrict you to some extent on smaller LDC acquisitions? I know it's that small, but does this lead you to a point where you're you're a bit more restricted on what you can do outside of of, of your base plan? Uh, no, no, Ben. Uh, I mean, from from our point of view, uh, we understood the asset condition for for longer than just this, this rate application. Um, so we had been uh, seeing this, this need for a while. It's now absolutely supported through customer consultation and so on, but that just allowed us to plan. Um, I know some of the questions from, from, uh, from analysts in the past have been, you know, with the decision of the DTA, would you look at returning uh, capital to, to um, investors? We said we would if we didn't uh, see a need for it. But this is where the uh, the need comes. So we do not see it impacting uh, one our ability to finance the application you have in front of you or LDCs. And in the past, what I've said is you know, LDC consolidation should continue at approximately you know one to two hundred billion per year. Now, if we did something larger, then um, you know beyond that, then yes, we would look at uh, how we would finance that. But you know one to two hundred million per year through this rate period, uh, we would see no need for additional uh, equity. Okay, great. And and then on the trade wrap, any any sense of of timing and on on decision? You you had a bit you know, quite a lengthy time before the the, the 2022, and you anticipate it's similar in the, in the past given all the, the conversations you had so far. Yet you had a couple months beyond just because of a, a joint application. I like got any thoughts, initial thoughts on on a decision. Yeah, we, we expect a decision in the fourth quarter of 2022. The, the OEB process for an application of this size, bigger than $500 million, is 355 days from the date of notice of application, um, which we expect will be around um, uh, August 9th, uh, you know, next year, if you go on that 355 days. But um, we really are expecting by Q4 of, of 2022. Okay, that's great. Thank you. 
Thank you. Our next question comes from Linda Ezergalis with TD Securities. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm wondering uh, if I can get a sense of uh, some of the aspects of your union agreement uh, that was just reached. Are those uh, already reflected in, in your JRAP? And also, how might we think of the uh, expiry of your IT Capgemini agreement um, the end of 2024? Uh, is it reasonable to assume uh, a renewal uh, similar to, to what's in place currently? Uh, any sort of uh, context on those two um, uh, agreements would be helpful. Sure, Linda. Maybe I'll take the, the society agreement first, which is the one that we recently signed. And, uh, and it will take us out to, uh, to 2023. So it was a, a successful bargaining with the, with the society and, and it resulted in a number of enhancements aligned to our strategic goals. And namely, uh, it's created a path to ensuring labor costs are better aligned to the market for society represented roles. And, uh, and the agreement also helps us move towards our corporate DNI sustainability goals. Um, as well as, as I said in my opening comments, a portion of the increases in the society agreement are, are equity-based, which which ties uh, more of our employees to the performance of the company, which we think is a positive outcome. It also uh, it also maintains uh, our existing contracting out flexibility. So as uh, we see our, our capital plan growing, that gives us some flexibility there as well to uh, to contract out some of that work. So. Um, uh, we think it was a, a, a good uh, a good agreement for both uh, our employees and for the company overall. And then the IT Cap Gemini, um, which is the second part of that, um, we uh, we we have um, uh, insourced uh, a lot of the uh, the um, from from Energex or sorry Energy to to uh, to uh, um, Hydro One a bunch of the IT. And then we have the outsource agreement with Capgemini for the, the remainder of those uh, services that used to be provided by Energy. We do see that uh, that, that is giving us an overall cost benefit by uh, by uh, that new arrangement with Capgemini directly. Um, I can't speculate on whether we will extend that contract at this point, but uh, but we are seeing that we are getting benefits out of that um, in the new arrangements with directly with Capgemini instead of through Energy. And, uh, and by insourcing the critical things that we wanted to have within the company. Okay, thank you. And um, as a follow-up, just better trying to understand um, what's uh, embedded in your JRAP, um, how can we think of uh, the inflation assumptions in your capital expenditures? And uh, you have a, uh, a capital factor as well, uh, just trying to get an understanding of um, – whether any sort of productivity factor uh, is embedded uh, in your capital factor in your formula as well. Yeah, maybe I'll ask Frank to uh, to speak to how we've uh, we've embedded the the, uh, the productivity into the capital factor. So, Frank, can you maybe um, uh, explain that to Linda? Sure. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, Linda, the last time we did our application uh, for transmission and distribution, we had put a bottom line reduction uh, into our application, and, and that seemed to cause confusion at the hearing. So what we've done now um, is we've built it into the formula, and it's just the standard formula from the OEB. So there is 
of course, your stretch factor. Uh, but in the capital factor, there's assumed additional stretch there as well. Uh, and so that, that, that productivity factor is now captured through the formula. In terms of the inflation, is the standard uh, inflation assumptions that follow the Ontario CPI, so in or around 2%. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from David Quisada with Raymond James. Your line is open. Thanks. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, my first question, just uh, just in light of the contemplated increase in CapEx, uh, which is pretty meaningful in the JRAP, I'm, I'm curious how you'll go about uh, or what your requirements will be in terms of adding staff and, uh, and I guess, um, how you think about the availability of third-party contractors um, as, as you look to increase the pace of CapEx. Yeah, David, it's Mark here. So um, as I talked about in the society agreement, we do have the ability to uh, to contract out, and, and society covers a lot of our uh, engineering project management, that type of, uh, of support. Um, we also do have the, uh, the ability on uh, on uh, new stations in Greenfield to contract that out into in transmission to to uh, outside um, contractors and construction companies. So we have been building a plan um, within our execution group to uh, to ramp up our uh, our uh, ability to deliver on this increased capital um, uh, without actually uh, increasing a lot of uh, headcount increases within Hydro One. So we, we have been negotiating to our agreements, that flexibility, knowing that we are looking at ramping up our capital, and I think we're in good shape to do that. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And then maybe there's one more for me. Uh, among the parts of your business uh, that are not covered by the JRAP, uh, I appreciate that you, that you will be putting out uh, an updated capital plan next year, but are, are you able to comment on just the um, – the pace of capex and rate-based growth that you expect for those other parts of the business, do you think it's going to be roughly consistent with uh, with what's outlined in the JRAP? Yeah, you know, a, a large part of our spend is 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 within the JRAP. There are some projects which are outside of JRAP and they are in uh, in other filings that we will be having. So, as part of JRAP, we're proposing two regulatory counts with the OEB to allow us to execute on new externally driven work without uh, materially impacting the JRAP CapEx. And, um, you know, so some examples of that are the development work for Wasigan, Chatham to Lakeshore and Lambton. Uh, they, we do expect these new transmission uh, projects to be in licensed partnerships like we did for B2M and NRLP, and they'll be subject to their own rate applications um, outside of JRAP. So some of some of our uh, of our new lines are outside of this investment plan which you're showing you today. Okay, great. Thanks for that. I'll get back in the queue. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question at this time, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. Our next question comes from Darius Lazany with Bank of America. Your line is open. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for taking my questions. Just wanted to uh, come back to the. Uh, proposed spending in the JRAP, specifically the the um, the division between distribution and transmission. It looks like the step up in distribution is a little bit more of a step change than in transmission. And um, you've touched on it a little bit, but can you just talk about what drove that uh, particular 
steps up? Is it more just a, a factor of the distribution rates being a little bit um, more out of date than transmission com comparably, or just a greater need to refurbish aging equipment or any other factors? I would say that the, the biggest uh, difference between TX and DX, why it is more of a step up is because in TX, our reliability of TX is first quartile, whereas our reliability on the DX side is, is third or fourth quartile. And in order to, uh, to improve the reliability, which is one of the things that customers um, uh, commented on and as our customer outreach, uh, we need to step up the, the spending there. And part of that is on, on things like, uh, poor condition poles, but it's also the, the technology investments I talked about before, which is the, the reclosers and, and fault finders and things like that on the system to, uh, to help us improve the reliability. So the, uh, the drivers are different with transmission and with distribution. And we do see that, uh, that, uh, we need to improve the reliability on the distribution side more so than on transmission. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Uh, one more, if I can. Uh, in terms of your four to seven percent uh, EPS guidance range through 22, now that we're uh, presumably there's some visibility into 2022, have you given any consideration to potentially narrowing that range? Hi, Darius. It's Chris. Uh, I can take this one. Um, we will leave that that guidance in place, and I think I've said in the past that look, you know. We, we have more confidence of being at the upper end of that range uh, that was provided uh, previously. Um, so it will stay consistent. Uh, when the joint rate application is approved, uh, we, we will update our guidance uh, beyond 2022. Okay, thank you. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Our next question comes from Patrick Kinney with National Bank Financial. Your line is open. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, just back to your sustainability targets. Um, I know your carbon footprint is already quite modest relative to other utilities in North America, but just curious on your, your target to reduce GHG emissions by 30% by 2030. Curious if you have any opportunities to move that reduction target more in line with um, the federal government's new target of 40 to 45%. And if you did accelerate that goal, um, what that might mean for the five-year capital plan? Yeah, we're we're uh, we just released our our goal of thirty by thirty, and and we think it's the right goal for us, um, irrespective of the fact that the government has accelerated it. And and to your point, we're uh, our carbon footprint is is relatively small, um, and we think our role actually is to help decarbonize. The, uh, the economy through connecting the 96% decarbonized electricity in Ontario to customers. Um, so uh, the other thing is our target includes scope one and scope two. So the scope two is tied to the to how green the grid is in in Ontario, at which we don't directly control. And so uh, so we wanted to make sure that we set a target which was achievable by the actions we can take. And we will also, you know, work with uh, with the suppliers and the ISO and the OEB on looking at the the mix of uh, carbon versus non-carbon generating electricity in Ontario. So we're comfortable with that. Um, and our uh, JRAP uh, includes investments to get there, and they're not incremental to what we were looking for. And so the primary area is around uh, converting our fleets. 
um, building automation into our buildings to reduce our carbon footprint of our of our buildings, um, uh, reducing the diesels in our remote communities. That's probably our biggest single footprint um, is our remote communities, and and some of those will be coming off of diesel as they're connected to the grid, and we'll look at uh, renewable opportunities for others. So we're comfortable with the the targets we've said set and uh, that they're they're achievable. Thanks for that, Mark. Uh, and as a follow-on, um, maybe for Chris too, but just perhaps you can confirm what amounts, if any, within the capital plan um, are earmarked for innovation and some of your green tech JVs. Um, I know you've, you, you're basically accelerating um, some of the charging station initiatives um, quite rapidly. So just curious if there's um, any upside to the capital plan related to some of those joint ventures. Thanks, Pat. Uh, yeah, so so there, there will be um, at, at this point in time. What you're referring to there is um, our joint venture, uh, Ivy, the, the charging network. Uh, it's in its very early stages, so that has not sort of um, there is upside to capital investment in there that's not included in this plan. So what we've really updated for today is really the the joint rate application. Uh, so to the extent that uh, EV penetration happens quicker, uh, or even more broader. Um, that would be reflected in the next uh, update. And we do those updates, Pat, normally around our business plan, um, so sort of the end of the year going into the new year. Uh, so there's definitely upside there. And that the EV charging stations is, is uh, would be outside the joint rate application in any case. It's not regulated. Um, but we do see upside there, and we will update that normally once a year uh, as part of our business planning process. Okay, that's perfect. I'll leave it there. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And our last question comes from Matthew Weeks with Industrial Alliance. Your line is open. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my uh, question. Uh, I was just noticing that when you look at uh, the, the CAPEX and the way that it's trending, it, it seems like a greater you know, amount has generally been uh, directed towards sustaining CAPEX so over the years. Um, you know, is it too early to tell, or would you say that this trend would continue or, or level off? If it does level off, you know, over the long term, would you see it leveling off at around maybe 75% or something like that, you know, sustaining CapEx as a percentage of total CapEx? Yeah, it's, it's marker. Um, so, so it is based on condition. The sustaining investments are primarily based on, on condition. And as I said before, um, we do condition assessments of our asset and, and, um, even at the investment that you're seeing today, we don't deal with all our poor condition assets by the end of the 27 period. And so, um, if you, if you assume, which is, which we need to, that, that the existing assets will continue to age, um, you know, we're not dealing with all the poor condition assets in this investment plan. Others will get into that poor condition zone by the end of the investment period that uh that we'll continually update and look at those conditions going forward as we as we develop our application beyond 27. So short answer is um that there is a long-term kind of uh need to invest in our aging assets in Ontario. Okay, thank you. That's it for me. I'll uh get back in queue. Thank you, and that does conclude our Q&A session for today. I'd like to turn the call back over to Omar Javid for any further remarks.
Thank you, Chen. Uh, the management team at Hydro One thanks everyone for their time with us this morning during what is a busy period. We appreciate your interest and your ownership. If you have any questions that weren't addressed on the call, please feel free to reach out and we'll get them answered for you. Thank you again and enjoy the rest of your day and continue to be safe. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating in today's conference. This does conclude today's program and you may all disconnect. Everyone have a great day. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.